This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As the nation braces for a promised peak in coronavirus cases that could be days or weeks or months away, the toll deepens in ways we haven't ever thought about. Dairy farmers in Wisconsin will be dumping all the milk they produce this week because there's no market for it. FEMA has ordered 100,000 body bags, and EMS workers here in New York have been told cardiac patients with no pulse must be declared dead. Hospitals have no space. CPR could spread the virus. The number of people filing unemployment claims due to the broad shutting of the nation had already staggered, and today we learn that number doubled. 6.6 million Americans filed new claims for unemployment benefits last week. Lewis lost his job amid this pandemic. He worked for a firm providing accounting services in Manhattan, and he joins us now from his home in Queens. So what happened, Lewis? Essentially, what happened was there was a 30% layoff across the board because our clients couldn't keep up revenue. It's affecting everybody in the financial industry. They had to let people go, and I was affected by that. Um, It's unfortunate, but I feel like there's a lot of people in the same boat. There's going to be a lot more people in the same boat before we recover. How long had you been at that job? So at that job, I had been 10 months. It's unfortunate because I couldn't even make the year because I had just gotten hired in June. You know, I really wanted to be there for a lot longer. You weren't the only one from your firm let go. No. So our firm operates our firm operates nationwide and across the nation, actually, people are let go from every office. How did they inform you or did you sort of see it coming? So the CEO gave, you know, we have we had a town hall where the CEO would give, you know, hope to people, but I, I kind of saw it coming because, you know, once you start doing the math, if the startup companies are tanking, because those are those are going to be the first people that, you know, they don't have an established business yet. Those are going to be the first people to be affected by it, and then they got to cut expenses. So, so yeah, so it's it's, it's understandable, and I, I I did kind of see it coming. Doesn't make it any easier, I imagine. No, it doesn't, especially in the in the job climate as it is now. It's 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 difficult. Because a lot of people are being laid off. There's not that many jobs because there's no money being made. So companies aren't necessarily hiring. And who knows when we're going to bounce back. How's your mom doing? I hear she had coronavirus. Yes, my mom had the virus. Um, She's doing better now. She's doing a lot better now. Uh, In the beginning, she had flu-like symptoms. And she lost her sense of taste. Um, It's been about... I want to say two weeks now, but she's basically quarantined in a room. We, you know, we give her food. We 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 try not to let her leave the room. Um, but now she's feeling a lot better. You know, that's 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 a good thing because a lot of people don't have that either. A lot of people they're they're passing passing away. They're having complications. But you're still one family that's being hit by both the healthcare crisis and the economic crisis, given your situation. Correct. That makes things a lot more difficult um, to withstand. Not only that, but my father's also self-employed. He sells uh, he sells jewelry to, to clients, and nobody's buying jewelry right now. Nobody has a disposable income to buy jewelry. And you know, with me being affected by this by the un, by being unemployed, um, 
it's difficult. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's it's a, it's a little difficult, but I'm I'm hopeful that we'll make it back. We'll make ends meet again. Good luck, Lewis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lewis and his family in Queens are among the American families that are waiting for help from the government and the $2 trillion stimulus that includes direct payments into bank accounts. Those checks couldn't come fast enough, and they should be cut in the coming weeks. That, of course, also poses some risks. The IRS is worried about scam artists who could take advantage of all this money. John Tafour at IRS Criminal Investigations is with us from Newark, where he's the special agent in charge. What worries you with these checks being cut now? Well, here at IRS Criminal Investigation, um, even during a deadly global pandemic that is currently going on, there are ruthless criminals that will take this opportunity to prey on our fears in order to try and line their own pockets by stealing their money and personal information for, from all taxpayers. Um, scammers will try to get them to sign over their check to them or use, them, use this as an opportunity to verify their filing information so they can receive their money. And to be clear, the IRS is never going to ask you over the phone or in an email for you to verify your personal information. That is correct. The IRS will never call you and ask for this information. The current process will be, it will be that the IRS will deposit your check into the direct deposit account previously provided on a taxpayer's filed tax return. And what about those who get a paper check? What concerns are there for those people? Well, those people currently will receive a check via paper also. Um, and the biggest concern with them is a lot of these people are people in need, so they may receive a phone call, an email, or a text from a thief or a scammer asking for their information and promising that they will get their refund for them much sooner than when Treasury will mail it out to them. By them providing that information, those individuals can go online and file tax returns or even file potentially for this impact payment through the IRS, knowing that they had the personal information and directing that money to a bank account not related to the taxpayer. I mean, with so much money going out of the Treasury and getting right into the hands of Americans, money that is unquestionably needed, how much worry do you have about that because of these kinds of scams? We're always worried about uh, financial fraud. Um, history has shown that criminals take every opportunity to perpetrate a fraud on unsuspecting victims, especially a group of people that are vulnerable or in a state of need. Anything that you recommend people do as they're about to receive these checks or, or anything that in particular they should keep an eye out for? Absolutely. I would say to them, if you receive a phone call, don't engage with scammers or thieves, even if you want to tell them that you know it's a scam or you think that you can beat them. Just hang up on them. If you receive texts or emails claiming that you can get your money faster by sending personal information or clicking on links, delete them. Don't click on any links in those emails or texts. It is bogus. Also, there are many reports swirling about bogus checks. If you receive a check in the mail now, it's, it's a fraud. It's certainly going to take Treasury a few weeks from now to send out those checks. Also, if you receive a check for an odd amount, especially one with cents, or a check that requires you to verify the check online or by calling a number, that's also fraudulent. John Tafour at IRS Criminal Investigations in Newark.
There's another worry for all of us working from home. It's nicknamed Zoom bombing, but it applies to any video teleconference that gets hijacked from the intended users. We're joined from the Boston office of the FBI by Doug Doman. Uh, Doug, explain Zoom bombing. Uh, Zoom bombing is a... uh is a technique being used right now where a subject is intruding upon a a VTC, yelling profanities, or uh, if there's video sharing, they're they're displaying uh, disturbing images on their camera for everyone in the meeting to see. I mean, it's really insidious at a time when we are all working from home and relying on video conferencing technology. How does it happen? Well, if a host does not use a, a password to protect their meeting, uh, we've seen some of these links to the meetings be shared over social media. Uh, they're basically hijacking the session by uh, causing a disruption. Are these actually crimes? Well, all we can do is is collect the information, uh, corroborate what's being what's being told to us, uh, and and cover leads that that we think are, are credible leads, and we can present these to the the AUSAs that we work with here, the federal prosecutors, and let them uh, take take it from that point on. Obviously, you want to know if this happens to someone, right? People should report this to the FBI? Uh, Yeah, we're asking everyone that experiences an incident such as this to report it to ic3.gov. What's going to be most effective is that everyone uses uh, security measures uh, and and puts those in place to to make sure that it doesn't happen in the first place. Uh, And so we're urging uh, the hosts of these meetings to only manage screen sharing so that they're the only uh, camera that's in view. Uh, We also, as I said, recommend a a password-protected meeting uh, and not to share in in social media. Doug Bowman with the FBI in Boston as teleconferencing becomes a way of life for many working from home. More coming up from my colleague Amy Robach. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Joining me now is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Ashton, we know that there are so many things we don't know, but there are some things we do know for certain. So tell us what the numbers are saying about those recovering from this virus right now. Amy, let's focus on recovery because we all definitely need some good news. Latest numbers today suggest that over 200,000 people have recovered from confirmed cases of coronavirus worldwide. And recent data just out in Lancet says that for people 60 and over without any pre-existing medical conditions, they have a 95% chance of survival. So that falls into the what we know category at this point. And certainly a glimmer of hope because it can be very frightening reading and seeing some of these headlines. But staying on the patient recovery time, where or what do we think we know about how long it takes to recover? So this is under the what we think we know category. And according to CDC recommendations for people who have been sick, whether they have a confirmed diagnosis or they just have symptoms suggestive of COVID-19, they can stop isolating when they are fever free without any medication for 72 hours 
and when it's been seven days since their first symptom. Now, this is in the what we think we know category because this is really just kind of best um, advice at the moment. It may evolve as we learn more. Right. And then for people who obviously are caring for loved ones but are wondering when it will be safe to be around them again if they are showing symptoms or even if they were diagnosed with COVID-19, what's that answer? So that's definitely in the what we don't know category because we don't know exactly when it is safe to be around someone who's been sick. It's also unknown how much virus it actually takes to infect someone. We know that about other viruses like the norovirus, for example. We don't know that about COVID-19. And we also don't know if just because you detect the virus, let's say in someone's nose or throat, if that makes them still contagious. So we're hearing case reports about people who test positive after they've recovered, but we don't know what the significance of that is at this time. So still a lot that we don't know. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips, who's in Washington, D.C., with all the latest headlines for us. Hi, Amy. Well, a lot of developments for you right now. We begin with the staggering new unemployment numbers. A record 6.6 million people applied for benefits last week, doubling the record high set just one week earlier. This is the largest weekly claims ever documented and a gut-wrenching sign that layoffs are on the rise during this coronavirus crisis. And security has now been stepped up for the nation's top infectious disease expert, the Justice Department, approving a request from the Health and Human Services for more than a half a dozen special agents to guard Dr. Anthony Fauci. The 79-year-old has been facing death threats for his comments in favor of sweeping public health guidelines to combat the coronavirus emergency. And New Orleans jazz great Ellis Marcellus Jr. has died after apparently succumbing to complications of the coronavirus. His son, Winton, announced his dad died of pneumonia brought on by the illness. Ellis, as you know, became a guiding force behind the late 20th century resurgence of jazz and inspired both his sons, who have also become prominent jazz musicians. As the COVID-19 crisis continues to spread, mayors throughout the country must determine the best plan of action for their city. No one knows more about that than my next guest, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner. And uh, this week, Mayor Turner announced the city's fourth death to COVID-19. And the number of confirmed cases there in Houston is on the rise, unfortunately. Mayor Turner, thanks for being with us. And first, just give us a sense of how Houston is holding up right now. Well, you know, Houston is holding, but the cases, the cases are rising as we do more testing. And we certainly expect that. And we're letting people know that the numbers will continue to rise. You know, um, we have put, uh, well, starting back on March the 11th, for example, we canceled one of the city's largest events, the uh, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. That draws about 60 to 70,000 people a day. Uh, we brought that to an end early uh, when, we, when we noticed that there was one contact that was made there. And I think that has helped uh, the following week. On March the 17th, we closed all of our restaurants, bars and nightclubs, except for, you know, takeout or delivery. And then the week after that, uh, the city of Houston, we put in place, city of Houston, Harris County, as well as other jurisdictions in our region, put in place to stay home, work safe order. Those measures have helped. We are focusing on social distancing. Uh, just uh, yesterday, for example, still noticing that a lot of people out there in the parks playing mm-hmm. basketball. So. I ordered all the basketball rims to be taken down. 
uh, to really reinforce the message that we need to engage in social distancing. But if we work together now to blunt the progression uh, so that our health care delivery system is not overwhelmed, uh, you know, that will that will be the victory. I know a number of first responders are testing positive for the virus, despite all the measures that you've put in place. What is the city doing to try and help them? Well, we're making sure that all of our first responders have the personal protection equipment. Um, We assume that every person, for example, in the city that they come in contact with uh, has the virus. So uh, all of our police officers and our firefighters, uh, they're going out with their equipment, their, their gloves, you know, their their mask, all of the you know they will they will have those things on from the very beginning, whether we know whether or not a person has the virus or or not. So making sure that they have the PPEs, we're letting uh, we're asking people when calls are made, for example, to our EMS units, uh, that if they uh, are not feeling well, colds, dry cough, fever, to let us know ahead of time. Uh, so that our first responders can deal with it. At the same time, it's not just police and fire. Uh, Houston Public Works, our employees that support police, fire, and all of our essential businesses. We ask the people to stay home. Uh, we have a, we have 18 of our public works employees. Uh, I'm sorry, yes, about 18 who have come down with the uh, the virus as well. So, quite frankly, all of the employees that are working at the city of Houston uh, that are here to support everyone else. I view them as essential, as on the front line, and we want to make sure that they have what they need. We've also, yesterday, for example, at City Council, uh, they, we gave the approval to, we're leasing two hotels, or quite frankly, it will be three, to house those first responders and city employees who uh, need to be quarantined, uh, can't go home and quarantine, or they've been tested positively and released from hospitals. We're going to utilize those three uh, hotels for them. And then for our homeless population, for example, that also needs to be quarantined, shouldn't be out there on the street, uh, we're going to utilize one of those uh, hotels uh, for them as well. All right. And Mayor Turner, I know that you are a man of faith. And on Tuesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott extended Texas's social distancing order for another month, but will now allow religious services that comply with CDC standards to be held. Do you support this move? Well, you know, let me just say this. The the faith-based community has been working very well with us. Um, Most of them, if not all of them, have gone to online streaming where they can. The others have not been meeting. And we appreciate that. We're all on the we're all on the same. We're on the same team. Uh, Your faith is not restricted or limited to your to the building. It goes even when you're not in the building. Uh, We can pray and we can worship even if we're not in the building. Very, very seldom do I miss a Sunday at church. Very, very seldom. Uh, But this is one of those times when it's best to exercise our faith and protect all of our members. Uh, You can get the virus even while being there. And so uh, what I would say, um, I don't think the faith-based community uh, need me to tell them that if a building, for example, is on fire, not to go into the building. And this is one of the times, whether you're in the building or outside, uh, you can contract uh, this particular virus. So I'm I'm just asking people to utilize their common sense. I'm asking the faith-based community to continue uh, to work with us. We're all on the same team. And let's do our part. And then our faith will carry us through the rest of the way. So I'm hopeful that the faith-based community will continue to work with Houston Harris County and simply do online streaming uh, where possible, uh, but not to bring their congregations uh, back to the uh, uh, to their churches or their mosques uh, uh, um, where they can be exposed and expose others. All right. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Stay well.
Thank you. Thank you as well. Stay safe. Well, there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. We will talk with a Facebook exec about the new feature the company is rolling out to connect those who need help with those who can give it. Stay with us. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With the number of coronavirus cases rising and increasing restrictions making it hard to leave the house, people are turning to social media not only for a sense of community, but also for a tool to help those in need. And Facebook is just one company leaning into this shift, rolling out a new feature this week to connect those looking for help with those offering it. Here to talk us through it is the head of the Facebook app, Fiji Simo. Thanks for being with us, Fiji. And before we talk about this new feature specifically, We should mention Facebook has faced some criticism over allowing misleading posts about the epidemic. What have you done to answer those claims? Well, as you can imagine, we have had to adjust our plans very quickly and have been looking at what people are doing on Facebook and what they need in this moment in time. Our first priority has been about connecting people to reliable information about what they have to do to stay safe. And one of our biggest initiatives has been launching the Coronavirus Information Center. We are also focused on helping people feel a sense of community because social distancing is really physical distancing, but hopefully it can come with social strengthening the tools that we have to to help people connect to one another remotely. And lastly, now we are seeing the economic impact within this crisis, and we really want to help create economic opportunities, in particular for local businesses. Now, Facebook, as you alluded to, created a new destination this week in response to the virus. So tell us about it. So a couple of weeks ago, we had launched the Coronavirus Information Center so that people can have a place to come to on Facebook for reliable information. This center has resources from trusted health authorities and allows you to see what is happening within your local communities. Within this center, this week, we launched Community Help, which is a destination for people to help those around them. There you can offer or request help, you can volunteer for a local nonprofit, you can donate to local fundraisers and more. This is really giving people a more structured way of offering help and asking for help. So it is more likely that people will need, who need help will get matched with us offering help. And we have seen nurses requesting medical supplies, people offering to deliver groceries. We have seen people request financial help due to the economic situation. We have seen psychotherapists offering help to people, a lot of nonprofits requesting volunteers, and even the New York Blood Center asking for blood donations. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. And obviously, there's such a need for it. But I know that people should be aware of a few things when asking for or offering help. What do you tell them? Yeah, so if you were to create a post within Community Help right now, the first thing you would see is a pop-up message from your country's national health authorities like the CDC, and we encourage people to read these guidelines to stay safe. On our side, we also have teams reviewing all the posts that are posted to Community Help and taking them down if they violate our community standards. And if you see something suspicious, you can also report it. All right, well, we appreciate this tool. It's going to help so many. Fiji, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, Dr. Jen is back now to answer more of your medical questions about the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Jen, if a person tests negative for the virus, does the test let you know if you were asymptomatic earlier? 
It doesn't yet. But what sounds like that question is alluding to is what we should be seeing soon, antibody testing or serology. That would be a blood test that shows if our body has mounted an immune response to an infection. We do that for all kinds of infections. And then we can say, well, wow, I didn't have any symptoms. So I must have been in that roughly 25 percent who became infected and were completely asymptomatic. So right now that test is not available, but soon hopefully it will be. Our next question, in the midst of this crisis, what worthwhile things can we do to boost our immune systems? A lot of people wanting to do this and wanting to know how. It is. And self-care more essential now than probably ever before. So the big three, your immune system depends on basically getting enough rest every night, which is very difficult. But seven to nine hours sleep has a direct impact on our immune system. Getting some kind of exercise, that is the only time I leave my apartment during the day now, is just to go for a quick 30-minute run. You're probably three hours, but (laughs) I'm just at 30 minutes. Um, And then eating a clean, nutritious diet is really important. If you smoke, this is the time to stop. That is horrible for your lungs and bad for your immune system as well. And then meditation. We heard Deepak Chopra earlier in the week talk about the health benefits. Um, There's scientific basis to that. So meditation that mind-body connection is really important. I think all incredible tips that I'm trying to follow each and every day. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. First responders are getting a much-needed helping hand this week thanks to a baseball jersey manufacturing facility. The Fanatics factory temporarily halting production of baseball uniforms. Instead, the company has now committed to using that same jersey fabric to make a million masks and gowns for our first responders battling the coronavirus. Joining me now, Michael Rubin, founder and executive chairman of Fanatics. He's also the co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team. Michael, thank you so much for being here and thank you for what you're doing. This is an incredible effort. It was your idea. How did you come up with it? You know, the truth be told, it was from watching the news. I I generally only watch live sports. I'm not a big TV watcher, but with no live sports, I've been sitting home watching the news. I went to bed at midnight, seeing all these horrific stories about people needing ventilators, people needing more testing and everything that people needed. And when the story came out about people needing masks, I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm like, wait a second. We have the factory that makes the official Major League Baseball jerseys here in Pennsylvania. Is there a way we could convert that to actually make uh, masks and gowns? And sure enough, we took the fabrics, we make the baseball jerseys with the same associates, and we're now making masks and gowns. Yeah, I mean, it is different than making baseball uniforms. What was that conversion like? Well, you know, for me, I had the fortunate uh, opportunity of just sending to just sending a note to our team and asking them, "Hey, is there a way you can do it?" And for fanatics, we have seven thousand employees that are all wanting to figure out how they can help and how they can make a big difference here. So, within a couple of days, working together with the state of Pennsylvania and also with uh, St. Luke's Hospital, they kind of designed a mask that thought would really help and meet the needs that they had. So we were really doing this. Within a week of coming up with the idea, we had this live already. We started shipping masks last week. Who's going to get these much-needed supplies? Uh, so St. Luke's Hospital, um, I think the first mask went to, and we're coordinating with the state of Pennsylvania and their emergency department to figure out exactly who to get them to. But we're now making more than 10,000 every day, and they're shipping them out every day as we manufacture them. So wow. they're getting out there pretty quickly, and I keep seeing – uh, people on social media. It's actually funny. Some people are like, hey, I can't believe I hate this baseball team, but I love what they're doing. So you see some pretty good banter of baseball fans 
I didn't think about this when we did it. We just thought about how do we take the fabrics that we have right. in the factory and how do we take the associates that we have and make masks put these possible, not really giving consideration that, that you're going to have bands of different teams wearing uh, you know, masks <laughs> from opposing teams. Just uniting us all in a different way. Michael Rubin, thank you for what you're doing for the people who are right there on the front lines risking their lives. Thank you for helping protect them. And when we come back, a list for all of us. Grandpa Bill Kelly is a 95-year-old World War II vet and yoga practitioner who can now add the coronavirus to the obstacles he has faced and triumphed over. You're going to meet hero Bill Kelly and his granddaughter next. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Our next guest survived the Great Depression, World War II, and the coronavirus. At 95 years old, Bill Kelly is a ray of hope for everyone. He joins us now along with his granddaughter, Rose, and her husband, Isaac, to tell us more about his story. Thank you so much for being with, you all, uh, being with us, all of you. And Bill, I want to start by asking you how you're doing, how you're feeling right now. How are you doing? How are you feeling, Grandpa? Oh, I'm feeling I'm, I'm feeling much better, and uh, in fact, I feel very good. Thank you. Yeah, that is so good to hear. I, I'm curious, Bill. How did this compare dealing with the coronavirus to the other obstacles you've been through in your life? How did this compare to the other obstacles in your life, Grandpa? Uh, it uh, uh, it is hard to say. It it's just uh, something that uh, you deal with as you uh, you get it, and. Uh, you kind of, uh, the big thing with me is that if I feel I'm coming down with something, uh, take good care and get help. Find out what, what to do and uh, do what you're supposed to, you know, get plenty of rest, this sort of thing. And uh, you generally get through it okay. And I was very fortunate. I did. I got through. I had uh, well, two or three uh, pretty tough nights and evenings. Uh, where I had uh, uh, problems with uh, my lower, my legs and uh, my back. Uh, difficult getting a rest because it was a very uncomfortable trying to sleep. Uh, other than that, though, I, I just, uh, you, you work your way through it, do as you're told. And uh, I've got some good help here. i got my <laughs> granddaughter and my daughter and, and Isaac here. And uh, they stay right on me. So uh, we worked it all through. So we're very, very happy and happy to be here. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're so it's so wonderful to see how far you've come. And Rose, tell us a little bit about your grandfather. He's a very special person. Yes, he is a very special person. So uh, my grandfather uh, was born. Uh, he's a New, New Year's baby, New Year's Day baby, January 1st, 1925. Um, and he comes from an Irish Catholic family. Uh, they were in um, come from the Chicago area, survived the Great Depression. And then they moved out west to San Francisco. And he told me his senior year of high school um, is when Pearl Harbor happened. And he and his classmates just couldn't wait to sign up, uh, you know, to go serve. And his dad was like, Bill, you have to finish high school. And so once Grandpa finished, he signed up. Um, he was amongst the first Seabees, uh, actually, which they were um, assigned to, the, to work with the Marine Corps. And he was in the South Pacific for three years. He was a part of the um, initial invasion of Guam. And um, yeah, so he did that and he came home. 
He got married. He's a retired uh, fire chief and fire marshal. And up until this uh, last year, he was driving himself back and forth <laughs> to yoga. Um, he has lots of friends. He's pretty incredible, tough guy. Well, we are so happy he made it through with flying colors and uh, we're about out of time. But Isaac, quick advice for anyone at home dealing with something similar. Yeah, well, um, I think in the, this time when uh, there's a lot of negative, I think the best advice we have is to stay positive and keep your eyes on the, uh, the good things that are happening. There are a lot of people surviving this and getting through it. Stay positive, stay healthy, and, um, and uh, yeah, keep your eyes on the, on the sunny side for sure. Oh, I think that's something we all needed to hear. Isaac, Rose, and Bill, thank you all for joining us. We're so happy you're doing so great. Thank you so much. It's thank you. great to be here. And we've got some final thoughts now from Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Jen. Amy, I loved hearing that story and just the, the vitality um, that he still has. But it reminded me of a very important emerging trend that we're seeing with coronavirus, which is that men seem to be more vulnerable um, and at a higher risk of death. They are equally affected um, in order of getting the infection as women are, but they have a double risk of death at every age group. We don't understand why, but you and I talk about gender-specific medicine all the time. Uh, a lot of time that focuses on women, but it appears that biologically women are actually the stronger um, of the two. It's not clear why, but our immune system is a little more robust. That may explain why women face autoimmune problems more often than men. It's not just about behavioral risk factors that place men at higher risk, but again, it's a trend that we're watching. There are always exceptions. We just heard a great example of one, um, but again, it, it reminds us there is still so much that we have to learn about this virus that is just barely four months old. Right. Yeah, and we are learning more and more every day with your guidance and help. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. We appreciate it. You bet. Every day, every hour, things are moving, changing so fast. And that's why we're here for you. The answers you need, the information you want, we will get through this together. When we come back, the detour down the aisle, the heartbreak for engaged couples who have to now put off their wedding day due to coronavirus. Some help is on the way. We'll have that next. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We're back now with a big obstacle down the aisle. Nearly 350,000 weddings were originally planned for April and May of this year. Well, now those couples postponing their official celebrations. The Knot and Wedding Wire recently launched a 24-7 hotline to offer couples tips and advice from industry experts as they navigate wedding planning. So joining us now is Kristen Maxwell-Cooper, editor-in-chief at The Knot. And Kristen, so many people are trying to figure out what to do. Where do you suggest they begin? Well, first of all, our thoughts are with all of these couples. We understand what a challenging time this is. And where they really want to start is whether it's it's calling our hotline or just getting on the phone with their vendors. You know, they are going to be the ones who are going to be best equipped to help them navigate this and decide whether or not, you know, they should be postponing to June, July, August and really pushing that out. Yeah. And what do people do in regards to planner fees? Because if they have to reschedule their wedding for a year later, even is the planner then going to charge extra for that? I mean, it's already expensive as it is now. All of these postponements can really cause some big financial concerns. 
you know, the vendors understand that this is out of the couple's control and the couples understand that this is out of the vendor's control. So really what we're seeing is that they're working together to figure out what makes the most sense for them. And it's, it's really, it's really been a really great partnership to see. We've been hearing from vendors. We've been hearing from couples saying we're working together and we're figuring out what works best for us. I'm assuming that if you were invited to a wedding in the next few months, you're probably assuming it's not going to happen. But you still have to notify your guests about when the new date is. So what are some tips to getting through all of that? The easiest thing you can do is update your wedding website. So go ahead and go on there, put a note to your family and friends, even if you don't know what the new date is, or even if you haven't made a full decision, at least let your guests know where your head is at. If you have decided to postpone, even create an FAQ, a little FAQ section, because oftentimes your guests are going to have the same question. So instead of fielding a lot of texts or calls, you can just put it all right there. I would also suggest that if there's if, if it's a destination or if you feel like a lot of guests are traveling, that you go ahead and reach out to the hotels, the room blocks, and sort of try to figure that out for your guests. It'll really go a long way. Certainly will. And wedding gowns. Some of them are even made overseas. So what are your alternatives if you're still trying to get your hands on one? The first thing you want to do is talk to your bridal salon or talk to the designer of the dress. Figure out if they're they are manufacturing overseas, if they are seeing delays. If they if they aren't and they feel like that they can get you the dress in time, great. If not, start looking at backup options. There are designers and brands like David's Bridal and Beholden who actually have manufacturers in the in the US and they have warehouses where they have some off the rack stuff. So if it's off the rack, it most likely won't need as many alterations. So there are gonna be some options for you, but make sure you're having those conversations as soon as possible with your bridal salon. Thank you so much, Kristen, for all of these helpful tips. I know you're giving brides and families out there some relief because it is so stressful planning a wedding in the first place. Wishing you good health. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.